Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, Sirius XM, Channel 130, and of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. We have some great conversation coming up. We're going to concentrate on China. These days, a very hot topic. Stephen Mosher, China expert and head of the Population Research Institute, will join us first to talk about religious freedom and the coronavirus origin. Later on, we'll go on to Congressman Brad Wenstrup, who serves Ohio's 2nd Congressional District, and he will join us with a look at where things stand there and here amid the coronavirus crisis. But first, Maureen, you wrote a great piece in The Hill about the importance of preserving Catholic education, specifically parochial Catholic education during this crisis. Can you please run us through it? Well, Catholic schools, like everyone else in the country, um, are feeling the effects of the pandemic. And sadly, many of them are really on the brink of closures due to the economic fallout, because Catholic schools, of course, rely on the generosity of the parish, uh, the generosity of various donors. um, And also, they rely upon the ability of parents to be able to scrape together the tuition to send their kids there. So, Um, So Catholic schools were able to benefit from the first wave of government relief for this bill. The Congress passed the CARES Act, and as part of that, they included the Paycheck Protection Program. So all employers, whether they were faith-based or small businesses, were able to apply for these forgivable loans, which essentially are, in most cases, turned into a grant. Um, So that Catholic schools were able to, in the short term, keep people on the payroll, keep their teachers on the payroll, keep their bus drivers, their cafeteria workers, anyone who is employed by the school. Um, So this first wave of relief did provide short-term help for Catholic schools. And remember, of course, many Catholic schools are located in underserved areas. There's such an amazing tradition of Catholic education in these underprivileged areas in the big cities in New York and Boston and Chicago, Los Angeles. So so this was a, a phone call to discuss sort of more the long-term situation for Catholic schools and the economic potential economic ruin they're facing because of the devastating fallout from coronavirus. Maureen, why should Americans who don't have children in parochial schools, why should Americans in general care about these schools? Well, I think a lot of Americans dismiss the fate of Catholic schools, just as your your question implies. But um, Catholic schools provide myriad benefits that are both quantifiable and quantifiable unquantifiable for the country. And one of the big topics of conversation on this phone call that you alluded to is the fact that Catholic schools end up saving the taxpayer about $24 billion a year. That's, that's, a billion an, that's an amazing number, Maureen. That's <laughs> $24 billion. <laughs> billion with a B. It's a shocking number. Um, that number really caught the attention of the president on the phone call. And the, the math is pretty simple. Catholic education, the average per pupil cost at a Catholic school is about $6,000 a year. 
The average cost of a public school education is about $12,000 a year. So Catholic schools, not only do they produce a better product, but they cost about half as much. But when you consider that there are 2 million American children who are being educated at Catholic schools, they're not taking up a spot in the public school. So that's 2 million uh, children in these Catholic parochial schools that the taxpayer is not paying to educate. So thank you so much, Maureen, for doing this with us. To read the full article, visit The Hill and look up Maureen Ferguson, or the title is Catholic Schools Are at Risk and So Are the Students. Now we're welcoming to the show Mr. Stephen Mosher. He is an internationally recognized authority on China and population issues, as well as an acclaimed author and speaker. Back in 1979, Stephen was the first American social scientist to visit mainland China, invited by the Chinese government. And when he was there, he was able to witness firsthand the um, installation of the one-child policy and also the way it was brutally enforced, including late-term abortions, forced abortions through C-sections, something which is very terrifying to hear about. He'll tell us about that later. And all of this that he witnessed made him reconsider his convictions, and he eventually became a practicing pro-life Roman Catholic. And his latest book is called Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Steve. Well, it's good to be with you here today. We're excited to talk to you today about China, as you are an expert on all things China, and you have been for a very long time. I'm also very personally excited to talk to you because you happen to have, you you don't know me from Adam, but you've had a huge influence on my family. We, My husband and I adopted a little girl from China about 10 years ago, and a big reason for that was your work in the Population Research Institute and having the knowledge that you were able to share with the world about the terrible practices in China about the the one-child policy and everything that flows downhill from there. Congratulations on that. Every baby girl adopted from China is a life saved, and I know you're raising her in the faith, so it's a soul saved as well. That's a wonderful thing. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. It is, it is a wonderful thing. It's been a tremendous joy for our whole family. She is the doll of our house. We, we couldn't be happier with her. But thanks to you, that, uh, in, a, in a big way, thanks to you that you made all that possible. Just the knowledge of what was going on inspired us to go to China and bring her home. Happy to be her honorary godfather. (laughs) So, Steve, this is Maureen Ferguson, and it really is wonderful to talk with you today. Um, I, too, have been familiar with your work for a very long time. I remember your book, A Mother's Ordeal. I followed your work since the 1990s when I was lobbying to stop taxpayer funding of the United Nations Population Fund because of its involvement in China's coercive one-child policy. And this is one of those issues, of course, that ping-pongs back and forth depending on whether we have a pro-life administration in the White House or not and whether there's pro-life leadership in Congress because Nancy Pelosi, of course, has been a longtime supporter of the United Nations Population Fund despite its involvement in China's program. So, but Steve, today we really wanted to talk about the issue of international religious freedom. One of the issues of grave concern to us is religious freedom. We also want to get your take on the coronavirus pandemic, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So we know that China is one of the worst offenders in terms of suppressing religious freedom. In fact, the International Religious Freedom Commission, USERF, as it's referred to, recently released its annual report, and it concluded that the Chinese Communist Party is engaged 
engaging in systematic, ongoing, egregious religious freedom violations. So we've seen all kinds of bad headlines coming out of China, um, arrest of a Catholic lawyer, crosses being taken off of churches. So can you share with us your thoughts on that, on just how aggressive China is becoming? Well, right now in China, we're in the middle of a new cultural revolution. It's a very different cultural revolution than what uh, Chairman Mao attempted back in the 1960s, where we had a million red guards, you know, uh, deceived, uh, gullible young people in Tiananmen Square waving their little red book and dancing the Chairman Mao dance. They were part of a cult, of course, an almost religious cult of worship of this uh, supposed communist demigod, Bao Zedong. The same thing is happening now, only there aren't a million people in Tiananmen Square dancing their little Mao dance and waving their little red book. Uh, but there are millions of people in China who have to download. It's a requirement of the government, of the Communist Party, really. They have to download the Xi Jinping app on their phone. This is an app uh, devoted to celebrating uh, the works, the writings of President for Life, Xi Jinping. And every day you have to spend 20 minutes reading a section of Xi Jinping's writings as if it were holy writ and answering questions. And you have to answer the questions correctly. Uh, so this is a form of, of uh, a daily devotion uh, that is required by the Chinese Communist Party of all uh, people in China. Of course, everyone in China now has a cell phone. And so the cell phones are being used for brainwashing, for indoctrination by a Communist Party that under Xi Jinping is, is kind of carrying out a, a covert a cultural revolution. Uh, people in China are, if you go into a, a Catholic church, you may find that all of the books in the library have been removed and replaced with the writings of Xi Jinping. Uh, I do not exaggerate. If you go in a Buddhist temple, you may hear the monks being forced to listen every day to the same 45-minute speech by President Xi Jinping on religion and how religion must serve the party. Uh, so we now have a cult of China in full operation. Uh, the Church of China, according to the Chinese Communist Party, is China. The acolytes in that church are the members of the Chinese Communist Party. And the head of that church, of course, is President for Life Xi Jinping himself. So uh, the new Red Emperor has taken upon himself the trappings of a god. That's the big picture. And under that umbrella, all this tremendous religious persecution is taking place because Catholics are being told, you shouldn't thank God for the blessings of your life. You should thank the Communist Party. You should thank uh, Chairman uh, Xi Jinping for all the blessings in your life. So it really is an attempt, a wholesale attempt to replace religious belief in God in China with belief in the Communist Party and its leader. That's what's happening. Steve, it sounds to me almost as though the Chinese Communist government tried to stamp out the need for transcendence and religion in their people and didn't find that possible. Are they trying to transform all of those leanings in, hum in the human heart towards leanings to follow the Communist government? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they realize that to being an officially atheistic Communist Party, uh, no Catholic, no Christian is allowed to join the ranks of the Communist Party. Most don't want to. And no uh, Catholic is allowed to hold any sensitive position in the government even one that doesn't require a party affiliation. So there's definite prejudice, bias uh, against Catholics, against Christians in China, but it goes far beyond that. It's an effort to replace uh, a transcendent uh, belief system uh, with a belief in, in the here and now that the Communist Party is the 
uh, collectively the savior of the people. And anyone who goes into a church is is said to be worshiping a false god. So they're trying to redirect humans, uh, human beings naturally striving for the, the transcendence uh, to the human beings natural inclination to try to fill uh, that empty place in their heart that god-shaped hole in their heart that only god can fill with a belief in in in, in a man-made savior it won't work of course it's never worked in human history uh, but those who oppose it are being bitterly bitterly persecuted not just crosses being torn off the tops of churches but churches actually being destroyed and even the so-called patriotic church whose members a year ago years ago said, okay, uh, we'll, we recognize the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. We acknowledge that you're supreme, but just leave us alone to worship inside our churches. Uh, even that is not a safe haven uh, for Catholics in China today. All Catholics are being persecuted in the underground church and in the so-called patriotic church as well. Stephen, I find your conversion story interesting because you first went to China as a young doctoral student. You were studying at Stanford. You went, you lived in China for a while. I understand you're fluent in the language and you went as a young atheist, but it's what you saw there that started you on your path to becoming Catholic. Is, is that, do I understand that correctly? Yes, I was uh, finishing my uh, doctoral dissertation at Stanford University when I was selected to be the first American social scientist on the ground in China since the communist revolution in 1949. I spent a year living uh, living in a Chinese commune. I read, write, and speak Chinese, several dialects, in fact. And I was there when the one-child policy began. I went with women when they were arrested for the crime, the crime, mind you, of being pregnant without permission. I went with them as they were taken to the local medical clinic and given forced abortions. And you know, if you're in the operating room, uh, when a woman who is seven, eight, or nine months pregnant is being given a lethal injection into the womb to kill her unborn child, <laughs> followed by a cesarean section abortion. Think about that for a second, a cesarean section abortion, a cesarean section done for the purpose of removing a now dead or dying baby. I was in that operating room, I was standing just a few feet away from the operating table. And you know, if, if you're in that situation, there is no doubt in your mind what is happening. A tiny uh, son of Adam or daughter of Eve is being killed, uh, being given a death sentence, uh, that they have done nothing to deserve. And I became pro-life in that, in that moment. Uh, and I also, I think, became uh, a searcher for God. And I had been uh, not a believer up until that point, but it was as if for me, this, this great evil, this pit of hell had opened up before me. And the killing of a full-term healthy uh, infant nearly at birth is probably the greatest evil I can imagine anyway. And recoiling from that, I began to seek the good. And of course, all goodness comes from God. And I was led over time to the uh, to the Catholic Church, which I joined in, in 1991. If you're just tuning in, that's Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute. And you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. That's a really moving story, Stephen, especially for me. I think I often think that my my daughter's mother in China may have been a great hero who kept her alive through a dangerous pregnancy. Yeah, it was very, very difficult for women in China under the one-child policy, which ran from 1980 when I was first in China. It officially ended uh, in 2016 when they went to a two-child policy. Of course, the government still tries to, to regulate births under that policy. But the many, many heroic women in China, heroic mothers in China, fled 
uh, before the population controllers. They went to hide in neighboring villages. They went into the hills and, and lived in, in, in tents and caves, just trying to protect uh, their unborn children and, and give life to them, as mothers everywhere do, of course. And some of them were, were able to succeed and then came back to their villages and towns to find the population control officials waiting to take their children mm-hmm. from them. And, and of course, you know the rest of the story, the story of abandoned baby girls, the story of baby girls who were dropped off at the front steps of orphanages. Well, one of the things that I've been able to do over the years is I've been instrumental in starting a couple of orphanages in China uh, just to save some of the baby girls uh, of the millions that have been uh, have been abused and abandoned. Steve, we've been talking about the you know egregious human rights violations that are affecting Christians, but they also affect Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists. Can you comment on some of the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party is uh, suppressing people of all faiths? Well, there are supposed to be, according to the Chinese Communist Party, there's supposed to be five permitted religions in China. There are Catholicism, Christian, you know, Protestantism, Islam, uh, Taoism, and Buddhism. Uh, But all faiths in China, other than faith in the Chinese Communist Party, are being persecuted now. Uh, Perhaps the most intense persecution, other than that being visited on uh, Catholics, is being visited on the the Uyghurs, which are a Turkish Muslim group in the far west of China, they've, they've been a separate people for thousands of years. They have their own language, their own history, their own system of writing. There are about 12 million of them. And the Chinese Communist Party has decided now to extinguish them as a separate people. Uh, I'm quite convinced that there's cultural genocide going on in that part of China. It's being done under the pretext of, of stopping radical Islam, but it is a program designed to imprison all the men uh, between the ages of about 25 and 55, that is the heads of families, to then put soldiers and policemen into the homes of the women and small children left behind so that policemen are billeted with these these mothers whose husbands have been arrested. You can imagine what goes on. And then the young people, the teenagers, 16 to 25, are literally being sold, and I use that word deliberately, sold to factories on the east coast of China to make goods uh, in factories for export to the United States and the rest of the world. They are sold in batches of 100. Uh, You can't order 99, you have to order 100. They come with their own police detachment. You have to put them in a separate dormitory and keep them in the factory compound. They're not allowed out of the factory except under escort. They're forced to work long hours, seven days a week. And in the evenings, after they've worked their 10 or 12-hour shift, they're forced to study the works of uh, the writings of President for Life, Xi Jinping, and learn the Chinese language. Uh, It's an effort by taking away the heads of households, by putting Chinese men in with the women left behind and taking the teenagers and young people away from the heartland, the Turkish Muslim heartland. It's an effort to commit cultural genocide. And it's happening right now as, as, as we speak. The Tibetans are also in danger of being extinguished. They've now forbidden the use of Tib- the Tibetan language in, in the schools, even in the primary schools in what uh, is the ancient and, of course, much uh, celebrated country of Tibet. Again, an effort at cultural genocide. Stephen, it's amazing to me that there's these horrors are going on in China and obviously they can be found out. You know them. You're, you're, you're talking about them and exposing them and so are other people, but the public um, in general is uh, either not paying attention or not understanding the magnitude of all this. Instead, we're all very concerned about this virus which has stopped everyone's lives. 
lives and is causing a tremendous disaster, an economic disaster and a human, just a human misery uh, catastrophe, right? The, the amount of misery that's being created by these, by these lockdowns and quarantines, not to mention the deaths of, through the virus. We don't have too much time left, but we wanted to know what you thought about the origin of the virus. Well, what I think about the, the uh, coronavirus is this. Uh, China only has one uh, level four, which is so supposedly a high containment bio lab in all of China, where they do research on dangerous coronaviruses. It is located in the heart of the city of Wuhan, uh, which everyone now knows by name, the city of Wuhan in central China. And they were doing what's called gain of function research on these dangerous coronaviruses. What kind of functions were the viruses to gain? Uh, well, the research using recombinant genetic technology was to make these viruses more infectious and more deadly. And you ask yourself, why would anyone want to make a potentially deadly coronavirus even more infectious and even more lethal? Uh, well, the answer is that the scientists were trying to do that in the lab to create superbugs so they could then define, find effective therapies, effective vaccines, vector treatments in case we had another superbug come from nature and make the leap from one species into human beings. Well, that's all well and good, uh, unless the superbug that you created leaks from the lab before you have a therapy for it, before you have a vaccine. And I believe that's exactly what happened uh, last October. Uh, when the area around the Wuhan Institute of Virology was shut down, all the traffic was stopped for several days. Uh, and then, of course, we know the first cases of the, uh, the China virus began at that time. This was a superbug that was created in the lab, in my opinion. It leaked from the lab. This lab uh, was built in 2017 uh, by the French and the French were supposed to stay there and monitor the doings of the lab. There were 50 French researchers slated to stay at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in February of 2017. Uh, once the lab was complete, once the Chinese Communist Party had its hands on the technology, they sent all the French packing. Not a single French researcher was ever allowed to do research in that lab. The World Health Organization, which is largely in China's pocket, refused to certify the lab as being a level four high containment lab you know so it was i think believe it was being run as a low containment lab and in terms of the china virus it was a no containment lab because it did not contain this deadly virus which spread throughout china and then because of the misinformation and the deception of the chinese communist party was uh, deliberately spread around the world so china has an awful lot to to answer for the spread of the virus uh, the leak of the virus from the lab. And I believe that, that uh, if you study the genome of the virus, that you can see that there were unusual insertions in the genome. I, I went through, before I, before I studied cytology, I went through a, a PhD program in the biological sciences, stopped short of writing a dissertation. But, but I, I, I've read the literature and I'm convinced this, this isn't an, an, an artificial virus. Steve, I've heard it said that the Chinese Communist Party has been playing both arsonist and fireman with the coronavirus that yeah. they're responsible for the tragic spread throughout the world and now they're seeking to capitalize on the vulnerable position that so many countries around the globe now find themselves in but i'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on your opinion as to as to china's malfeasance in terms of the spread how were they lying to the world about how this virus was spreading well they, they were lying to the world in 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 every possible way you can imagine 
Uh, they were lying about the, the origin of the virus. They claimed it originated at a wet market uh, when someone ate a bat. Uh, there were no bats being sold at the wet market in Wuhan. Uh, they claimed that the first cases uh, were actually brought to the United from the United States to China in late October during the military games that were held in Wuhan. They claim it was brought by the U.S. Army to Wuhan, and that's that's where the spread began. So they're telling their own people through the mouthpieces of various propaganda outlets of the Chinese Communist Party that this is a U.S. Uh, bioweapon that was unleashed on the Chinese people. If you can believe that, some Chinese apparently do, because that's all they're allowed to hear. They lied to the the, the world about the uh, about the infectiousness of the virus. They said it could not be transmitted human to human. It was only possible to be transmitted in the way AIDS was if you touched, you know, infected fluids. If you transmitted body fluids from one person to another, it is very infectious. It's probably because it was designed to be infectious. It's anywhere from a hundred to a thousand times more infectious than other coronaviruses. The World Health Organization, we know from German intelligence uh, intercepts just from a couple days ago, that the World Health Organization head, Dr. Tedros, was asked by Xi Jinping early on uh, to not declare a pandemic, and Dr. Tedros agreed, uh, and he held back on doing that for several weeks, allowing the virus to spread from China around the world. Uh, China literally spread the virus by allowing flights from Wuhan to travel to Rome, San Francisco, New York, lots of flights to New York and other places around the world. This is not to say that the Chinese people are in any way responsible for the spread of the virus. Uh, they didn't know about the virus. They were kept in the dark, uh, just as Americans and French and Brits were kept in the dark. And they were not told that there was a problem until uh, January 23rd, when the city of Wuhan was locked down. Uh, the Chinese government knew they had a problem months before, months before. But the first thing they did was lock down the military bases in the city of Wuhan so that the people with the guns, the soldiers would not become ill because they thought if the epidemic reaches crisis proportions, uh, they might have civil unrest. So the first thing they did was lock down the military bases. I think that tells you everything you need to know. And they're responsible for all the consequences. Every business that goes bankrupt, everybody who's lost their job, everybody who's fallen sick from the Chinese virus, everyone who's had a family member die, these are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party. And the first and foremost victims, of course, are always the Chinese the people Chinese. themselves. Thank you for being with us today, Steve. Thank you for giving us all, all those insights. And where can our listeners learn more? Well, the, the website is pop.org. It's very easy to remember, pop.org. Pop short for population. I'm a pop. I have nine children, but the pop in pop.org is Population Research Institute. Well, thank you very much, Steve Mosher, for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. Yeah. Next, we're joined by Congressman Brad Wenstrup. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. Our next guest, Congressman Brad Wenstrup, has an extensive pro-life and pro-family record serving Ohio's 2nd Congressional District. Voters from Southern Ohio overwhelmingly renominated Dr. Brad Wenstrup to continue serving in Congress, winning the Republican primary election with 94% of the vote. Congratulations, Congressman Wenstrup, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. Hey, thank you. Great to be with you. Well, we are 
so delighted to have you with us today. It's been such a treasure to get to know you and your dear wife, Monica, over the past few years since you've been serving in the House of Representatives. And our listeners might not know you are also a doctor, you're a small business owner, you're an Iraq War veteran, where you served as a combat surgeon, actually. And our listeners also might remember that Congressman Wenstrup, uh, along with the Capitol Police, are the heroes of that awful shooting at the congressional baseball practice field several years ago. And it was Congressman Wenstrup who crawled out on the field amidst that gunfire to save the life of his fellow congressman, Steve Scalise, who had been shot, but is now, thank God, doing really well. But anyway, Congressman, you are joining us today from Ohio. I bet one of the silver linings of this dreadful pandemic is that you get to be out of Washington and back in your home district. Yeah, that's the truth. It's it's nice to be home and uh, every day from a distance uh, being with your neighbors and the people that you represent as, as well as your family. Although with a six-year-old and a two-year-old, especially a two-year-old, sometimes your work gets interrupted a little bit and knocks on the door and things like that. But it's been a pleasure to be home with them and my wife. And actually, I just had our anniversary, May 12th, our eighth anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Oh, Thank you. Wow. Well, between the two of us, we have 10 children, so we know all about those interruptions. And we would, <laughs> we would welcome hearing from your two adorable children. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's good. I was doing one call and it was the video conferencing and she came in the room and I just put her on my lap and they, they loved it. So. Oh, well, it certainly wouldn't bother us any. I'm sure you have so much to think about these days, Congressman. We just personally finished a conversation with an expert on China discussing China's dishonesty and mishandling of the pandemic at its origin, and we were hoping that you could share with us your thoughts on how Congress might respond to that situation. So Congress and the president, actually, you know, the president uh, has responded, one, with the World Health Organization saying that we are going to withhold funding because in part, we think that then, and evidence shows that uh, they were helping China tell a different story than what was actually going on. And so exactly what we do with China in this situation remains to be seen. But I will tell you, we have a task force on China specifically in the House of Representatives amongst the Republicans. We know that we need to act. There's so many concerns with China. When you have a situation and, a, and an entity like the World Health Organization, which is designed to benefit human kind and it is being used as a political tool to cover up things it's very challenging i served on cincinnati board of health for a few years and we didn't have anything like this obviously but we did deal with outbreaks of things and you have to have accurate data you always have to have accurate data if you're going to make good decisions and when people are skewing the data or changing the data or hiding data then it's harmful to everybody else involved you know for things to come out where we were said oh travel shouldn't matter go ahead and travel or it's not human to human. That was false as we've learned and that's dangerous. I'm grateful the president cut out travel from China when he did. What was even more disturbing with China is though they eliminated domestic travel, they allowed people to travel out of the country, which showed a complete disrespect for the health of people around the world and tried to create a, a different image. Or maybe they did want other people in the world to get it. I don't know. We may never know that answer, but we can't allow this to happen. Happen and we have to have an honest system established in some way that we can manage 
situations like this, honestly, make the best decisions. It seems to me that the situation is already very hampered by the lack of reliable data and real factual knowledge about how this virus behaves in a medical sense. Do you find that your medical background helps you to sift through the mountains of unreliable data that we're getting from all over the world? Well, it really it really has. You know, I don't pretend to be a uh, virology specialist, but I will tell you that I've done a lot of work with uh, infectious disease doctors and locally, but also with another couple of doctors here in Ohio digging deep into this and doing research on previous coronaviruses, what led to this one. And one of the things that was one of my early takeaways before we really heard Dr. Fauci and Dr. Brooks talking about it was the benefits of the convalescent plasma where someone who has had this virus and recovered, which there are thousands and thousands of people that have, they are carrying antibodies that can be harvested from a donation, just like a blood donation, but it's taking the plasma, and that can be used to help other patients that are suffering from the virus. And it seemingly it works well for those, if you can get to them before they get they need the ventilator before they're in the ICU. Uh, that seems to have had the best results. But you can use this with some of the antivirals that are out there as well. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. And so the me my medical background cued me into that pretty quickly. We actually did public service announcements about it uh, locally. And hopefully we'll get a lot of people cured because other people who have had it, had, they got better. Now they have a chance to make someone else better. And, it's, and that's kind of a beautiful thing. Wow. Well, I know your state of Ohio of course, has been so badly affected. I think 21,000 cases and 1,200 residents have fallen victim to the virus. And I know you've been doing all kinds of work. You're helping passing the CARES Act. I know you have a special concern for the hospitals in the rural communities, those suffering from opioid addictions. So tell us a little bit more about your work on the ground there in Ohio. And, and then I'll also be curious to hear when you do come back to Washington, how is Congress even getting its work done with social distancing on the House floor. I know Speaker Pelosi has this proposal for proxy voting, which has never been done before. So just give us a little window into all of that. Okay, well, we're not for the proxy voting. That would be a new precedent, and I, I don't think it's a good precedent. You know, I can tell you we're much more effective when we are there together face-to-face, -to -face, and we've got to get back to that. And we've gone back for a couple of votes, and that has worked out fine. Now, the gallery is closed. So when we sit on the floor, we're spaced out apart from each other. And when we actually vote, we don't all come at the same time. We're, we're spread out. So I, I think it could be done. It needs to be done. And we've asked people in grocery stores and in our hospitals to, to go out and take care of others. We should be doing the same thing ourselves and uh, step up and, and, and do that smartly. Ohio, um, you know, there were predictions that 100,000 people in Ohio would get this. Uh, I looked at the models like some others have is the models are something to beat. I was always a little taken when someone talked about the models as though this was definitive and definitely going to happen. You know, I, I appreciate those that create the models, but they're full of assumptions and hypotheticals. And so our job was to beat them. And we really have, you know, I have some hospitals, you talk about rural hospitals, Southern Ohio Medical Center. When I last checked with them, I said, how many patients have you had to admit? Zero. 
So they have had so little and the rural counties really have not had much of this at all. And so it's hard for the people in rural counties to understand why they're on this shutdown so ubiquitously when it's there's such a small presence of it. And those that have gotten it have done fine. Now you go into the Cincinnati area that I represent and it's a little bit more robust. And obviously, you know, that's different from New York. On a local level, I think we need to make decisions locally. Although states are making decisions, I think it's also important that we weigh in on safe practices through our health directors in various counties and business to business, etc. But I think we can go ahead and do that. But the risk factors are much less in my rural areas than they are in the urban areas. And you need to take that into consideration as far as how we're opening up. Southern Ohio, as you mentioned about the opioid crisis, we have been dealing with that for years. If you read the book Dreamland, which is all about how this came about, there's a picture on the cover that's my district. Well, that community has stepped up, and so we have across southern Ohio done a lot to try and curb that, to flatten that curve, if you will. And it and it's starting to have benefits, and that's because people locally have really stepped up and tried to make a difference in the lives of their community. But it is still a problem, and trying to deal with that and deal with hospitals and that closing and limiting treatments is very difficult. I was visiting my practice. I was in a large orthopedic practice in Cincinnati, and I was uh, visiting there yesterday. And, you know, patients are coming in, they're wearing masks, and they're keeping their distance, and everybody's being smart about what they're doing. But, you know, in many cases, the show must go on. And I think across the board, the show has to go on. It just may be done a little bit differently. Congressman Brad Wenstrup on Conversations with Consequences, EWTN Radio. Congressman, you're talking about how the country has to go back out, no, in, uh, on the next footing, which is not necessarily this uh, severe lockdown all across the country, but going to the next level, the next phase. I'm, most, I'm very concerned, and, and you mentioned uh, your the practice that you visit, your old practice that you visited. I'm, I'm very concerned as a doctor with the fact that so many Americans have put on this, put off necessary medical care for so many weeks now. Are you concerned also that Americans have to find a way to get back to the doctor and take care of other medical risks that aren't COVID? Yeah, you know, when we started as a country, we just took a broad sweeping brush and said, of our protective equipment. These numbers are going to be huge. And, you know, it, it hasn't turned out to be that, thankfully, you know, so that's not a bad thing. But I think there was some misunderstanding. If you look at the guidelines for procedures that was put out by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, I think it was pretty clear of what you could do, but I don't think it was always interpreted well. I mean, a very sad case is I had a sheriff from one of my counties call me and said, Brad, something's got to be done. I had a guy 75 years old. He had a painful hernia his his surgery was canceled and he was dealing with the pain and it was so great he committed suicide oh no now that is a horrible situation and i could give you other stories you know not quite as drastic as that but still of great concern of care not being rendered and i spoke with our governor and the governor and the health director came out and told the state listen you're supposed to be doing those types of procedures let's let's be clear you are not supposed to be shutting everything down there are things you you need to do but it's time to get 
back to it. There's a lot of safe environments. You know, if you always take universal precautions as a doctor. Look, we operated on AIDS patients. We operated through the AIDS epidemic, and we didn't always know if a patient was sick or not. But we we took histories and we tried to know as much as we could know and reduce our risk and take universal precautions, which we can do the same thing now. We just have to make sure we're doing them. So, Congressman, in times uh, such as we're in, so many Americans naturally turn to their faith as a source of grounding, as a source of peace. And, you know, we all understood at the beginning of this why the churches had to be closed. But now, of course, we're in the reopening phase. But we've seen a real conflict between church and state in many regions. You know, there's a real balancing act, of course, when it comes to protecting the public health on the one hand, but not curtailing our First Amendment freedom of religion. And I know the Attorney General Bill Barr has weighed in on a few of these cases in Virginia and I think Mississippi, and one recently near you in Kentucky. There was a big win, I think maybe just this week, where, you know, the judge was kind of saying this church service in the park parking lot, the people were being fined, and the judge asked, why is it safe to be in the parking lot of the liquor store, but not in the church parking lot? Right. Uh, you know, right. how can we go get donuts and go to Home Depot, but we can't We can't be trusted to social distance at church? And of course, like you've said, different regions are, are very different, and, you know, perhaps it's very different in a densely populated area as opposed to a rural area. So can you share your thoughts on that balancing act? Yeah, in general, there's been some really bizarre type of decisions being made by people in authority and I'm glad that Attorney General Barr has been a really strong ally of the faithful in America and but we've seen some some crazy things you know there was there was a priest who was doing adoration outside and you could drive up in your car for during adoration and and they went after that none of this doesn't make any sense and in general america doesn't like when they're told something just because you have to be told in a parental way a, a loving parental way why something may be the best thing to do for you and for your community that isn't taking place in a lot of places they're just making this decision sometimes it seems like an out and out attack against religion itself when you allow one thing but then not the other and it, and it doesn't make sense and i'm glad that Attorney General Barr is, is, is on our side with that. And, you know, we've got to get people back into churches. But I would say, you know, we've been watching Mass online. And it is kind of interesting because some of the priests, we said, well, our, our flock has grown because we've gotten more hits and more people <laughs> watching our Mass than we would have in our regular parish. Well, that's fine. But that's not the same as us all coming together. And we can do it smartly. And I'd hate to think that we'd have to start doing things like having church uh, in, in a black market type of situation. But our governor has basically said, or we've been told throughout that we, no one's really stopped that. We've just been trying to give guidance. And I hope that people understand that and churches should, should start opening up. You know, just, just be smart. You know, the church has always been smart. I know going to Mass when there's colds going around, they'll say, you know, we're not going to shake hands today or this and that. So we'll just take the precautions, but let's get back to the Lord and, and do it together. Congressman, it's not only uh, faith, Americans of faith, uh, that find some of these uh, lockdown 
around decisions, illogical and un- very difficult to understand. It's also small business owners who yeah. are are wondering why some businesses are allowed to open, other ones are made to remain closed. And everybody thinks that their job is essential because everybody's job is essential <laughs> to their own mm-hmm. families. How is Ohio handling the coming back? Well, first, you just took words out of my mouth <laughs> as you were starting that question. I've always been bothered by that essential, non-essential. I've seen that in the military where some people were labeled non-essential and it didn't go over very well for the commander who said it. <laughs> but I agree with you because everyone is essential. We're all in this in this together. And there, again, that that goes to the, the decision-making process where you, why are you not making sense of this? You know, and you've had one governor say, well, you can go to the store and get your disinfectant, but you can't reach over and purchase that hose at the same time. I mean, I mean, these are the things that just just don't make sense and so I think that if we as American people demand that there be some sense and science and uh, some compassion behind the decisions being made then we're better off you know through this whole thing one of the things that I have been concerned about is we can focus on the virus the virus the virus but are we forgetting the rest of the body We've seen an increase in domestic violence. We had a veteran that I've worked with for years who lost his leg. I've known the isolation got too much to him. Uh, you see more depression. All those types of things have to be considered as well as our economic stability. Uh, an economically stable country is a much healthier country. And you have to put all these things into place to make decisions. And we haven't always seen that. Do you think that the other part, the Democratic Party, is less able to balance all these different um, necessities for American health, whether they're economic or, or COVID? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to go on a limb a little bit. I don't mean for all Democrats or all people. I, the mask, for example. Uh, don't, be, don't be condemning people that aren't wearing a mask. They may have already had the virus. They may be fine. They may, may be tested and they don't have it. They're not putting anyone at risk. Or maybe they're just keeping their distance. I know I was in D.C. and somebody walked by, not close to me, I mean at least 15 yards away, and said, you're not wearing a mask? And I said, you know, if you get closer to me, I might. <laughs> But, you know, there's it's like this is some moral virtue. I, I get it. But, uh, again, consider locale. Be smart. And, and avoid the types of things that can prevent you from getting it. So I'm not sure, and I, I hope that there aren't people that are relishing for political purposes in an uh, economy that's going down. This economy is ready to bounce back. I'm on the phone all day with people that are raring and ready to go. And I, again, I don't know what we as members of the House are not in session conducting business, but members of the Senate are. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Congressman, we only have just a minute left, and I know that Gracie wanted to ask you a question about your precious adopted daughter, because she's got something in common with you about that. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I heard uh, Maureen was telling me that your, sec- that your little girl is adopted, and our youngest, our fifth, uh, is also adopted, and she's a spectacular blessing to our family. So I was wondering if you wanted to tell us what a blessing your little girl is. Uh, I can't imagine life without her, for one thing. It's just so amazing. You know, I got married a little later in life, and uh, just slightly older than my wife, but we were fortunate our ages to have our son. When we got married, we went into a doctor, we could get pregnant, and we did. And our son is now six years old. odds of us having nice slim, and you know what? Why not, why not adopt a child? We got a child at 
she's wonderful. Uh, she's been such an, and the kids love her. They play together all the time. And like I said, I can't imagine life without her. Well, Congressman, you know, May is Foster Care and Adoption Month, so maybe somebody will listen to us and become inspired to bless their own families that way. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Congressman Wenstrup, for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. We wish you the best and lots of success in Congress getting our country back on its feet. Thank you. God bless you and your families and everyone you meet. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, Jesus will talk to us specifically about four promises, four blessings, four different ways he wants to relate to us. He said these words during the Last Supper, not only to prepare the apostles for his betrayal, crucifixion, and death that would happen within hours, but even more for the post-resurrection reality of the church, which is why the church always ponders these passages during the Easter season. The first promise, I will not leave you orphans. Jesus tells us he'll never abandon us. Sometimes we may feel alone, just like he felt on the cross. But in a similar way to the way God the Father was with him, so Jesus will be with us. What a great consolation this is. Something we pray that all those in the ICUs with COVID-19 or otherwise feel alone may experience. Notice the expression Jesus uses. He doesn't say, I will not leave you alone, but rather I will not leave you orphans. He will not allow us to be abandoned of father and mother. He will speak to us later about how, the, how God the Father will remain with us. And on the following afternoon, he will give us his own mother to be our mother. This month of May, dedicated to Our Lady, how important it is for us to recognize that we're not orphans, but to live ever more in communion with God the Father and with Mary, our spiritual mother, both of which are made possible by the work of Jesus, the Son of the Father and Son of Mary. The second promise, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you always, the spirit of truth. And Jesus says, you know, because he remains in you and will be with you. We're now beginning our remote preparation for Pentecost. And Jesus will be speaking to us three weeks in a row about the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Today, I will just mention one of the chief works of the Holy Spirit is to convince us that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. The Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts so that we might cry out, Abba, Father, so that we might recognize the intimacy of a relationship with God as Daddy. The Holy Spirit will remain in us, helping us to relate to God the Father as beloved sons and daughters, so that we will never feel orphaned. The third promise, in a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Jesus tells us that his resurrection will be our life. I live and you will live, he says. And that when he goes to be with the Father, to dwell in communion with the Father, he's going to bring us with him as members of his mystical body. This is a mind-blowing reality. Jesus will develop it more deeply on Holy Thursday in a passage we'll hear next Sunday. But his mission is to bring us into communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to bring us into that communion of persons in love, to help us come alive through his resurrection and ascension, and to assist us to live in communion with God, who entered our world to redeem us and make that communion possible. The fourth promise, whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. We have been made 
by God who is love in his image and likeness, meaning that we've been made by love with a capital L for love with a small L. Earlier during the Last Supper, Jesus said, just as the Father loves me, and we know that the Father can't love him anymore, so I love you. Then he asks us to remain in his love, telling us that we'll remain in his love when we love God and love others as he has loved us. So there's a condition he places on our receiving his love. We have to love. That's why Jesus speaks to us in the gospel this Sunday about keeping his commandments. He tells us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one that loves me. Jesus tells us that we can not have communion with him unless we do what he commands. It's a clear reason for this. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. We cannot separate him from the word he put into flesh. We can't truly love him and at the same time choose not to love his will expressed in the commandments. We cannot have a union with him and not have a union with him at the same time. It's the spiritual principle of non-contradiction. We can't love him and at the same time fail to be faithful by breaking the commandments, all of which hang, Jesus tells us in St. Matthew's Gospel, on the twofold command to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor. We cannot love God and then choose other gods over him to take the first commandment, or to use his name as a throwaway word to take the second, or to prioritize non-essential work, cartoons, sports, or political talk shows on Sunday, the Lord's Day, which is the third to take the rest of the commandments. We cannot love God and at the same time disrespect those through whom he gave us life, or hate and kill or steal and lie to those whom he loves. We cannot love him and at the same time think that his love is not enough by coveting what others have or the ones they love. It's pretty simple conceptually, but in practice, many of us try to separate Jesus, Jesus from his word, thinking that we love him as long as we have positive feelings about him or respect him or have affection for him. But he tells us love is shown in deeds. Just like a husband's love for his wife is shown not by how many times he whispers, I love you in her ears, but by his faithful love for her in all his deeds. So our love for Jesus is shown by our loving fidelity and remaining faithful to him in all the areas specified by his commands. As we prepare for Sunday, Jesus wants us to get ready so that our conversation with him, just like the conversation he had with the apostles on Holy Thursday, might truly be consequential, so that we, through zealously desiring and striving to keep his commands, may experience the blessings he promises. He wants us to experience the real love of God the Father and of the Blessed Mother, especially when we're in difficulty, reminding us of their protection and prayers. He wants us to receive in full measure the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wants to raise us to live with him and to see him as he reveals himself to us. So let us ask for the grace to express our gratitude to him and enter into the covenant of love, by remaining always in communion with him in choosing morally to please him along the path of love he gives us in the commandments. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 